This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Emeritus Professor of Policy Analysis and former head of the Department of Management at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We're going to discuss how did our education system get to be like this? This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back with my guest, Professor Gwyn Bevan, who, as I said in the introduction, is a professor at the London School of Economics. He's also had an illustrious career as an author, a lecturer, and advisor to the government on numerous committees, from the Inspection of Police and Fire Services, an Education Commission of the Rockefeller Foundation, and numerous other posts. He's an expert on public services, health, education, and the police. His current research includes comparisons of performance in health in schools across the UK. And a recent book, How Did Britain Come to This? A Century of Systematic Failures of Governance. And that will provide some of the basis of our discussion today. Although I'd like to concentrate on education, I'm particularly interested to talk to Gwyn, as I don't think it's just me. But I'm going to guess that out there, if you're listening this morning, as we approach the Christmas holidays, that something is seriously wrong. Schools aren't working as they should. And I don't know if you'll identify lack of spending, austerity, government cuts, incompetence in the government, or something deeper, something in the historic development of our attitude to education, and indeed wider public services, across the 20th century. And it's this area that I want to explore with my guest this morning, Gwyn Bevan. He creates a narrative of the 20th century, particularly since the Second World War, where we see what he describes as historic failure. And I think most of us would agree that something is indeed very wrong. So, Gwen, welcome to Teachers Talk Radio and welcome to my show on Friday morning, the Friday morning break. Great to be here. Thank you very much, John. Well, as I said, as we briefly talked before I started recording, uh, I've been, I've spent probably, I've, you know, I've been, I've been sort of, what's, what they call it these days, stalking you online. I've been watching some of your lectures and I've been reading your book and you give a, a very good account, it seems to me, of how we got to the situation we're in. And uh, from the context of the schools, and as, again, as I was saying to you before we started recording, one of the experiences I had in teaching was, was to see the world of education and public services generally, but from my experience of teaching, see it transformed by the values of the market and neoliberalism. And you talk, you give a kind of narrative of why that came about. And so how, how did we get to a point sometime in the 1980s where the market seemed to be the answer to everything, including schools? What we've had are... The, what I describe as these two major political settlements of the 20th century, which was Clement Attlee's government 
after the Second World War, which was, this was all about tackling William Beveridge's five giant evils of want, disease, squalor, ignorance, and idleness. And they, they, these, that government was focused on developing systems in place to tackle each of these different problems. So, I mean, that they, they enacted the Butler Act of 1944 that moved the school system from one state school system, one based on elementary schools to age 14, which are systems of primary. And it was the first time you actually had free state secondary education in this country. But it, and it, and it was an extraordinary achievement what they accomplished under very difficult circumstances in those six years. But what they designed was designed for the problems of the 1930s. So by the 1970s, these these were beginning to show signs of failure. Hence, Margaret Thatcher's government, elected in 1979, promised a radical change. But the big difference between her settlement and the Artley settlement is, you know, if you think about the five giant evils, there was William Beveridge, a liberal uh, design system of social security. R.A. Butler was a conservative minister of education, designed this, the Education Act. Maynard Keynes, a liberal, set up policies to tackle employment. And Aaron Bevan, my famous namesake, developed policies for the NHS and um, council housing. But it was non-ideological, whereas the Thatcher government was completely ideological. It was all about markets. And as you were saying, John, the, the underlying belief is market solution to all our problems. So if we look at the school system, there were two things that, there's the way the system was designed, which was, well, as you will remember this, it was, it looked to be very rigid. Parents had basically had no choice. The school you went to was the catchment area you were in. The school funding was determined incrementally based on past budgets and did not adjust depending as the numbers of pupils in the school change or as their needs changed. Um, and also there was you know, there was no system to tackle things that were going wrong. So a failing school could continue to fail for a generation. I mean, the village I live in, which is just north of Oxford, it said the primary school head teacher there loved watching tennis. So in Wimbledon fortnight, the whole school would watch tennis. And no one, we had the 11 plus at the time, I wasn't here then, but no one from this village passed the 11 plus while she was head teacher of that school, you know. So we had no system, it was all based on trust. We can trust the teachers to do a fantastic job. Now, of course, most teachers go into teaching to do that because they, they've got this mission, I'm sure you did. You know, it's a wonderful thing, you know, we all know this, when you people understand, you know, people understand things they did not understand before and see that development. But as it, in all walks of life, as they say, there are some people who frankly can't be bothered. And we had no way of getting rid of that. And the, the, the big scandal that sort of put it all in the public domain was at William Tyndale School, which you may or may not remember. But this was a school where it was taken over by, this would be the, the lefties so loathed by Margaret Thatcher, who decided it was up to children whether they wanted to learn or not. And uh, one child at the inquiry famously said, you don't get learned nothing at this school, you know. Um, so the, the, the attraction of the market that they introduced was 
you've got to choose choice of parents. You can now choose your school. Money follows pupils, so the funding of the school reflects the pupils that you've got. And as my friend and colleague with whom I have a continual disagreement on this on, this is Julian Legrand at LSE argues that his attraction to the, the market system is that if you're doing if you're in a school and everyone's doing phenomenally well, you get, you know, you 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 transform the, the lives of your children through fantastic education, you will thrive in the market, you get more money, you get rewarded. And if you provide if you do a really terrible job and can't be bothered then parents will take their children away from the school. So his argument is that what, we've, what we're doing here is he, what he calls the other invisible hand is that you know, this will, the market mechanism will correct these. This looks to be a much better system than the one that we got from the Utley government. Yeah, the, one, one, one thought occurs to me there is that it's an odd paradox, really, because the market, markets, one of the, one of the effects of markets is they produce innovation. In other words, if thing doesn't work, you you're going to go out of business, so you try something else. So innovation is always thought to be a sort of characteristic of private enterprise and markets. And yeah, yet, absolutely, yeah. And yet, if you leave teachers to do their own thing, you'll get William Tyndale School, you'll get bad teachers, yeah. but you'll also get um, creativity and um, teachers in their classrooms doing remark. you know, it works because I know it works and so on. You'll get, yeah, the, yes. you'll get the kind of create... So oddly, there's a sort of paradox. In, in order to, to introduce the market, they had to direct, I mean, the national curriculum from above. So in order for you to innovate, we have to tell you what to do. It seemed to me an odd paradox. Well, well that, was, that was seen at the time as a, as a controversial decision. You're right. I mean, there's a contradiction with neoliberalism because within the ideas of neoliberalism where people have free choice, parents should be able to, schools should choose their curricula and parents could choose schools with different curricula. Hmm. But the other thing going on here, which relates to the point you were talking about, which is the school league tables, is that what they wanted to do was to inform parents on the quality of education they got in their schools. So that's why you, if you have a standardised curriculum and school league tables, you can see how well different schools are performing and make an informed choice on that basis. Yeah, it, and yet one of the experiences I had was that schools became... When I, when I first started teaching, uh, early on in my career, I went to quite a few schools. One, one school I taught at the longest was, um, in its day, would have been thought of as progressive, comprehensive school. There were no school uniforms. There, were, um, there was a great deal of autonomy in the school, for better, for better and for worse. And there, were, there were things wrong with that and so on. But there was, they, were, they played around with the timetable and so on. As the years went by, that school and all the schools I knew became more, more similar. They, uniforms were introduced. The, t- the national curriculum was imposed with greater and greater efficiency. And so every school became kind of the same. So what you were trying to be the best at was being the best at being well, the same. Well, if, if you introduce, um, I mean, what, what happens once you introduce, well, as you know, the school details of performance, you know, in which you're in competition in that way then it does put enormous pressure on you to achieve the standards are set by the mm. government which your performance is measured. I mean, the, the point, the, the issue I have here, though, this will not be, <laughs> be so popular with you and your listeners, is that, um, you know, I, as my name implies, I'm actually from Wales, and I've been, and most of my work is in healthcare. 
and we've had this natural experiment in the NHS of the different countries having different systems of governance. And that also, of course, happened with schools when, after devolution in 1999, the Welsh government, you know, this was actually under pressure from the National Union of Teachers, underwent a consultation and decided to abolish school league, publication of school league tables. And there was this careful um, econometric experiment led by Stuart Burgess, Sam Burgess at Bristol, comparing schools in England and schools in Wales. And what he showed was that um, the, the stopping school league, publication school league tables in Wales meant that pupils in Wales were disadvantaged compared with similar pupils in England in terms of getting good GCSE results, five good GCSE results. And, it, I mean, he was stunned about the power of the, the impact that he saw of that. It was like two grades per student per year at GCSE. For every year, they stopped doing it. And what really troubles me about this, because my family are from a mining valley in South Wales, you know, so the only reason I'm still alive now in LSE is through education that got me to escape from family to escape from that, is that what they found was that the best schools in Wales, this would be in the socially advantaged areas of, you know, of Wales, stopping school details had no impact on them. The places where this pupil suffered were in the deprived former mining valleys of South Wales. And so you've got this contradiction mm. of, you know, a a socialist government saying, you know, we are the true socialists, unlike the new the Blairites. Um, so we're not going to punish our teachers through this pressure for school league tables. Um, but then the people who lose out are actually the children of the poor. So it's quite a complicated uh, process. This. So, so I think. I, I, I yeah yeah yeah. I, I didn't. I don't think te the teacher audience listening to this will be too. Offended by the idea of accountability, uh, you know. I think that's that. that you know, it, it was that idea, though, that the, the, the best form of accountability was a, was a rather odd idea that somehow schools, bad schools, would fail, and good schools would thrive in a market. Well, that well, that that was never going to work, was it? That was just daft. The the, the, the big the big advocate of um, markets for schools. It's a U.S. scholar who was at Harvard. I think she's now at Stanford. Carolyn Hoxby, and she, the, the, the problem with neoliberalism, where the conditions for the market to work aren't satisfied, and one of the ones that she identified is the one you've identified, you, you, you've put your finger on, which calls supply-side flexibility, which is that failing schools will exit the market, and the good schools will expand, or new schools will come in. And that doesn't happen, of course. First of all, the government's not prepared to fund a vast number of patients places in excess of the children we have in schools because of budgetary constraints. Uh, and that means you don't have supply-side flexibility. So the failing schools, this is what the Institute for Fiscal Studies found, the sink schools will operate with a something like 90% capacity because, you know, people have to go somewhere. So actually they're underfunded for the capacity that they've got, but they don't close, they just linger on. And the good schools that are oversubscribed one of the criteria of being a good school is you are oversubscribed. You do not want to expand capacity because that's going to 
you know, impair one of your indicators of your success. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs on Teachers Talk Radio. My guest this week, Professor Gwyn Bevan. We are discussing how did schools get to be like this? It made me laugh um, with recognition when I read, when I read, when I heard you think I've heard you say that or read that. And that was the idea. Of course, you're absolutely right. You, don't, you want to send your kids to the school where it's difficult to get in. <laughs> you don't want to send your kids to the school where everyone can send their kids to that school. It's scarcity is a is a is a kind of desirable value. Uh, absolutely, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's what we it's what Fred Hirsch called a positional good, which is the positional good is different from normal good. So the, the contrast we have is with healthcare. You know, if, if everyone gets fantastic health care, the quality I get is not impaired. If all our children get a fantastic... Well, that was the issue we had when, you know, you expand university education, where, the job is I can't track it down, but I think one minister said, we want to send 50% of our, you know, adolescents to university so they can get the 25% top jobs. You know, you're not... It's not going to happen like that, you know. Uh, you know, and so by expanding university, you then get the Russell Group emerging as a group of elite universities, and then you have to get a graduate degree, you know, because so, so it's this scarcity is what you're into in education which makes it so complicated. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as Tech User Labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. 
I know that some countries in the world experimented with, and it was even considered, I think, I think I'm right in saying it was considered vouchers were considered a possibility in this country. Essentially, you, you completely marketize the system. Parents are turned into consumers. Yeah, well, that's, Chile. that's what Chile did. Yeah. yeah and it, uh, I don't know enough that's to, to say it didn't. <laughs> I'm guessing it didn't work. That was terrible. Well, it led to it led to these huge protests in the streets in Chile. Um, it's called the Penguin Revolution, where the children took to the street. What, what happens then is this goes back to one of the high priests of neoliberalism, Milton Friedman. He argued for vouchers for schools. This is back in the 1950s. Yeah. And um, it was implemented when um, there was, you know, they, uh, they killed Allende. They assassinated Allende, the Marxist president of Chile. And President Galtieri came in, a close friend of Margaret Thatcher's, it must be said, yes. um, who, who imposed these policies of neoliberalism and introduced a voucher system for schools. So, and Milton Friedman's argument is that, you know, if you want to spend money as a parent on going to a good restaurant or having a nice holiday, you're perfectly free to do that. But what you won't let people do is spend their money on a better education for their children. Now, of course, you can do that in the independent sector, which is hugely expensive because the state doesn't, you have to pay the tax for the state education and private education. Mm. So Friedman said, what we'll do is you'll get a voucher, which is the state will cover all the basic costs of education. And there'll be state schools you can go to, which will, which, which will just take the voucher and go to these top up schools where you pay a bit more and you get education. Now, of course, the way he argues that is that this is simply that the voucher schools get more money. But what it also does is to, of course, introduce serious social segregation. Because the children, I mean, the way it starts off is, you know, you can, you can easily afford to, to pay the voucher. They introduce the system. You will pay a voucher to send your child to the voucher school because they're going to get a, they obviously get a better education than not. But after that, the voucher schools have got children from the better off parents who are concerned with their education. They will attract really good. It's a nice place to go and teach, unlike the voucher schools, which have got deprived children, you know, whose either parents can't afford or don't care about their children's education. You know, so in the extreme case, I remember one of my students at LSE saying his partner taught in a school where there were children whose mother was a drug addict whose father was in prison you know now you know what it's like to teach those sorts of children they're not going to be in the top-up school they'll they'll be, they'll all be in the voucher schools so the next step you get to is even if you can't easily afford to send your child to a voucher school you know there is this huge gulf between these two different schools and you will do all you can to to afford to pay to send your child to the voucher school so then the gulf just widens over time. So you get this huge social debt segregation then. So the voucher schools not only got more money, but have got pupils that are easier to teach. It's a, it's a, an odd piece of sort of, um, I, I think it's cognitive dissonance or something, that, that people, would, if you ask them, yeah, would, yeah. You, would you like every local school to be as good as every local school? So just take the worry away. Your local school is the best school for you. They say yes. But then they'll behave to get, some advantage for their children. I, I probably did the same for my children. You, you then think, well, that school is slightly better than that school. I'll, what can I do to manipulate the system to get them into that? And soon enough, you're creating 
an inequality. Right, yeah. You would you would you desire not to have that equality, but you'll create it. <laughs> it's it's kind of it's, it's uh, you know we'd rather not pay taxes, but we'd also like to be, have wonderful social services. It's kind of par- yeah, sort of paradox. Um, is what what happened going back slightly in time? So in the in the nineteen seventies into the eighties, why did why did that post war Atlee settlement fail? I mean, you, you've mentioned one thing: the, the failure of accountability and choice and so on. People desired that, but why were the wheels coming off that era? Well, it was a series. I mean, what I argue is that the two different things that played out basically. But but one one of the um, what I describe as the linchpin of the Utley settlement, and you have to remember this is looking back to the 1930s now, when there were horrendous rates of unemployment. You know, in in the lecture that's been recorded, I described the Jarrow March of 1936. In Jarrow, they'd closed the, um, the shipbuilding works there, and there was 70% unemployment. You know, and in the valleys of Wales, it was 40. In the point, you know, it's just terrible unemployment and people in grinding poverty as a consequence and um the what i read i and others regard the greatest economist of the 20th century john maynard keynes was arguing that the government needed to do something and the <laughs> stop me john if this uh, yeah. but basically it's a very simple you know like all these things once a genius has spotted you can you can easily see it which is that the government believe you should balance the budget. So once you unemployment increases, you lose taxes and you have to pay up social security benefits. So you lose income and the expenditure goes up. So you have to cut expenditure. And you cut expenditure and government expenditure. That then, inc- that then creates unemployment, which reduces and so on. And so he showed that the, the view, the Treasury in 1930, we should not interfere with the, with the economy. It will return to full employment in the long run. And he showed that was completely wrong, that what they were doing would perpetuate unemployment for the, forever, basically. And he said the government needs to intervene. So the promise of the Utley government was, we will deliver a high and stable level of employment. And that continued for what I described as the 30 glorious years from 1945 to 1975, at which point there were various oil crises and it was mismanaged and unemployment increased. And so Margaret Thatcher's you know, a famous poster in the 1979 election campaign was of a queue of unemployed men outside a Labour exchange. Um, and so it was, it's got Labour isn't working. So it just symbolised, you know, the failure of the... the I mean, there were other things as well. So that was that was the, the key failure there. So, so it was... A, so in the, late, in the late 70s, you've got this... You know, uh, stagflation. It shouldn't happen, but we've got it. We've got, inf- got inflation sitting beside prices. <laughs> prices are going up, and inflation's going down. That shouldn't, according to Keynes, that shouldn't happen. So on. So there's an economic crisis now. That then this revelation, sort of as it were, Milton Freeman, Chicago School. The the answer is markets. Now, what are the signs that that is coming to an end? That that has run its course. Well, I think the. I mean, you know, there were. Um, I mean, the, the trouble is that one of the consequences of that um, was, you know, that Margaret Thatcher did not believe that government should interfere in any way with the market for employment. And Milton Friedman persuaded the government all you needed to do was worry about inflation, control the money supply. And then 
shortly, the, the, sorry, the, the, I'll, I'll make this very short. Basically, we then North Sea oil started flowing into the country. And unlike Norway, the government didn't manage the currency and didn't manage manufacturing industry. So we wiped out, you know, all the areas that are now left behind. There's a process of deindustrialization that did not happen in Norway. And the Thatcher government believed that somehow, that, you know, as in the 1930s, especially view, the market will reintroduce employment. And we've got these now profound entrenched inequalities between different parts of Britain. And that is one, you know, one of the horrendous failings of the neoliberal settlement are degrees of entrenching geographical equalities in the UK without parallel in other developed countries. So that's one sign of it. And it is, the, you know, you've got this, mm. you know, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation showing a million children are destitute. You know, it's just our failing public services are falling, falling apart all over the place. You know, it's just, it's just not, not working. Yeah, I, that... Uh, statistic, I forget where I first saw it, of, of the widening gap between the, num the number of enormously rich people, the people who are paid n numbers of, you know, amounts of money that would have seemed silly money uh, years ago. And, um, uh, you know, the boardroom to shop floor yeah, gap right, yeah. widens and widens and widens. And as you say, then there's a, then there's a, nor the, the, when that phrase um, levelling yeah. up first appears, it's a, it's a, so you're saying that's a kind of acknowledgement yeah, that something right, was seriously yeah. wrong. That the the market doesn't produce evenly good results for everybody. Yes. Well, the thing, I mean, the the contrast that we've had that that you know is what's happened in Germany, because um, in in 1991 mm. you had the fall of communism, and GDP per capita in East Germany, this is the cross East Germany compared with West Germany, was about a this is gross domestic product per capita. It's an indication of how well off individuals are in different parts of Germany. And the people in the East were only a quarter as well off as those in the West. Uh, the recent analysis, you know, this is, I think, 2019, shows that the poorest regions in the East are now at the same level as the, as the poorest regions in the West. So Germany has gone a long way towards levelling up. But large, vast amounts of money was transferred from the West to the East. This was not a market doing this. There was strong government intervention. And what I do is to compare, um, you know, the, Germany, where you'd expect to be substantial inequality because of communism, and Italy, where there's this famous north-south divide. And the ratio from richest region to poorest region is threefold in each of these countries, where we know we'd expect to be huge inequalities. And in the UK, it's an eightfold difference between inner London West and Teesside. You know? Yes. And... Um, so Teesside GDP per capita is something like £22,000. And in the London West, it's £190,000. And if actually you look within the London West, the richest region in Italy is Bolzano, which is in the north. It's got a population of half a million. If you look at the parts of inner London that got a population of half a million, the richest ones, their GDP per capita is £340,000. That's 17 times what it is in Teesside. You know, it's not... It's just, and, and the other thing, of course, is because of what's happened with the financialization of housing. You can't, you know, you can't move from these, <laughs> if you live near Nottingham, you know, moving to London, you know, it's just, just not possible.
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as Tech User Labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The big political news this week was the launch of the DfE in England's consultation on how best to implement minimum levels of service in schools if teaching and support staff unions go on strike. The BBC reports that education unions who were involved in talks with government over MSLs called the announcement shameful. One of the two options being put forward is to guarantee that vulnerable children, those due to take exams, Children of critical workers and all primary school pupils can go into school on strike days. A leaked DfE document suggests that this amounts to 74% of pupils. In October, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan said MSLs would be introduced with the unions on a voluntary basis first. But the government could use legal powers brought in earlier this year under the Strikes Act. The DfE says the plans will protect education. The consultation will last nine weeks. All four teaching unions involved in talks reacted angrily to the announcement. Much of the media focus in recent days has been on the inquest into the death of Ruth Perry. The Guardian featured a report focusing on comments made by colleagues of the late head teacher, which focused on her evident distress during the days of the inspection. Much has been made of comments from Ofsted inspectors that Mrs Perry was upset tearful and looked like she was in pain. The inquest began after Mrs Perry's family discovered that its bid for legal aid had been rejected, but a crowdfunding campaign saw donations totalling more than £63,000. 
behaviour in schools has also been a hot topic on both sides of the England-Scotland border. The Dunfermline Press reported that Fife Council's education chiefs are trying to curb a rise in violence in schools, but they don't believe in negative consequences. Instead, children learning about bullying should be an empowering experience. In a new version of the anti-bullying policy, the aim is stated that children do not bully others because they understand the harm it causes and choose not to cause such harm. It goes on to say where children do choose to bully, we need to engage with them educationally, supportively and restoratively rather than punitively. Comments on the paper's website, however, appear to show disapproval of the policy, with one comment describing it as utter nonsense and another saying it was psychobabble. The draft policy has been issued to head teachers, guidance staff and educational psychologists for their views, before schools are asked to create a personalised policy for their setting based on the final draft. Meanwhile, over the border in England, The Guardian reports that head teachers are describing a culture of non-compliance among pupils and parents. Whereas once a parent who was called into school to discuss concerns was likely to be broadly supportive of teachers' decisions, now heads are saying parents more often side with their child and take to social media to register their feelings. Many heads also say that behaviour has changed from having to deal with lesson disruption to managing internal truancy, as pupils come to school to socialise but refuse to attend lessons to learn. Some leaders also highlighted an increase in verbal abuse and swearing. Head teachers also pointed out that whilst challenging behaviour is nothing new, non-compliance is on the increase, and the reduction in the availability of specialist support services has made matters worse. One leader summed up the current situation. Since COVID, people seem to be far less tolerant, and that includes pupils and parents. Popular quiz show University Challenge is in the news as the BBC reports that a Christmas episode has been pulled after two contestants complained about a lack of provision for their disabilities. According to the report, contestants were not provided with promised audio description for visual images or subtitles to help with audio processing. The BBC agreed to withdraw the episode after the complaints were received. Finally, the BBC features a report on a civil servant who quit her Whitehall job to retrain as a teacher. The former employee of the DfE began teacher training in 2022, and Ms Melbourne is just one example of over 35s joining the profession, according to charity New Teach. Research suggests that recent graduates are shunning the profession, but older people are stepping up to fill the gap. Figures also suggest that older starters stay in the profession longer than the national average and are more representative of society in terms of gender and ethnicity. Could this be a solution to a recruitment crisis? This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs on Teachers Talk Radio. My guest this week, Professor Gwyn Bevan. We are discussing, how did schools get to be like this?
Yes. Fascinating. There, what another? It's so earlier I, I said, you know, I, I thought my, I mean, my father was a, was a sort of Labour trades unionist guy in the 1970s. He said to me, you know, there are some things, some things the government has to do. That's like schools, education, health, so on. And, and, and the commanding heights, he was a great believer in nationalisation, commanding heights of the economy. That's government should do that. You acknowledge that markets do things like Marks and Spencers and selling you underpants and things. And that, that would be the best for them things to do, a mixed economy. And, and, I, and, and so I thought I, I, I took that on board. Yes, schools and health and public services and other things and essential services are best provided by the government and, and some, somehow socialised in some way. One, one way round that, one way they squared the circle by saying acknowledging that was to create these sort of mimicking markets, these pseudo markets. So you got within the health service, and one thing I saw in schools was, okay, the parents can't move around. Okay, you, can't, you can't build the new schools like mushrooms all over the place. But if your school starts to fail, there'll be someone on your case called Ofsted. The, student, the teachers will be able to see this. And within the school itself, you know, teachers will be, there'll be performance-related pay. You'll be, you'll be all in competition not only with each other, but between schools as if you were a market. Okay, the, the parents will at least punish you by thinking of you as a poor school. And the trusts and were the answer, you know, schools would then have a big degree of autonomy. But my view is it hasn't worked. I mean, the view of modern economics is that it's wrong to think you should nationalise the commanding heights of the economy. But the distinction you should make is where markets work and where they don't work. So broadly speaking, I mean, it's more complicated than this, but basically, Nationalising steel and nationalising coal doesn't doesn't seem to make sense because the, these satisfy characteristics of a market working. But healthcare, the, I mean, the issue that we have with with healthcare and schools, there's this impenetrable, sadly, an impenetrable economist called Oliver Williamson, who I try and translate into English in my book, one of my missions in life, basically. And he analyzes causes of market failure. He uses this particularly impenetrable language. So the, the phrase he uses that no one can understand is called site asset specificity, really. And what that means is you want a local service. You want a local post office. You want a local school. You want a local hospital, local surgery. You know, as you say, when you buy your underpants from Marks and Spencers, it doesn't really matter where they're produced. But actually... Where the school is and where the hospital is and where the post office is is vitally important for you. And so one of and, and the whole thing that makes markets work is there's lots of competition. Once you introduce this requirement for services to be local, you remove one of the key elements to make the market work. The reason why the market can work for coal and steel is there are lots of producers all over the place. You don't have to live, you know, you get to... so that's the key difference. Um, and that's why the market won't work. Now, the other point I argue in my book, um, this comes from me working for the the, NH, the first NHS quality inspectorate, which was called Commission for Health Improvement. Tony Blair used to describe it as an offset for the NHS, basically. You know, it was a label we sought <laughs> to distance ourselves from. This is back in the early 2000s. What I got to understand is, we were supposed, it was called the Commission for Health Improvements. The idea is you go in and offer the enable hospital to improve. But there's this big difference in healthcare, but it applies in all public services quality assurance and quality improvements. So, quality assurance is just 
is this hospital a safe place for you know you your mother or or, or you know or children to go to that's quality assurance it's you know i mean so it's so i think and, and we could do that what we couldn't do was help hospitals improve as what that's not you either you either do quality assurance which is the you know this is the like the police inspectorate coming in in which people will be but naturally very defensive and concerned you know like this case about headmasters committing suicide i mean you, you know this is the police coming in you can't expect the police to help you improve performance that that I mean, it's a you know collegial learning environment so what we got to understood it understand is that's all we could do and we can't do the other thing we need to organize that completely differently so and i know there's this debate now about ofsted not being fit for purpose in the inspection zone i mean my art what i would say my view is i mean you know much more about schools than I do, but um, that Ofsted should limit itself to a relatively simple mission, which is, is this school failing or not? Is it okay to send your children to this school? And it, that, that could have a very streamlined, very simple set of inspections. It shouldn't put the fear of God into schools, because you should only fear Ofsted if you are providing a truly awful educational experience. But to get improvement, you need a completely different basis. And that's where I, you know, it was the London Challenge where you get a network of schools sharing performance, learning from each other. And I think that's, I mean, the, the, the way we've got, what happens in this country, is, as, as you know, John, very well, is to get terribly worried about failure and they introduce systems to deal with failure. What we do not do is develop systems to enable people to improve and perform better and learn from the best. Yeah, that, I, absolutely. I can't agree with you more of that. I, one of the experiences I felt was a change in the whole attitude to teachers. Um, I mean, I famously described, I think it was Michael Gove as, as the blob, yeah. or you certainly may have described this public services generally as a blob, and that kind of intractable lot who resist change and so on. And whatever truth there might have been in that, it, the, the answer was yeah. disciplinary. So the market wasn't just seen as a way of creating innovation. It was a way of punishing. You know, it was the not you know, lame yeah, ducks. Yeah. Oh, I forget who first used that. Bit of, we won't support the lame ducks in industry and we'll let the schools go to the wall. I mean, all that was, all that, that was nonsense. Ofsted and its culture was disciplinary. It was to root out the baddens. You know, so it didn't come into school looking to help, as you say. It came into school to find out what you were up to. I mean, but see, the other thing, which, which is this truly devastating finding um it's from uh, oecd where they did this um international comparison of literacy and numeracy skills of it's children aged 16 to 19 i think it's it is this is about 2010 they did this survey but it's only been analyzed recently and published by oecd so it's children who are 16 to 19 in 2010 with those who would be 65 to 70, or 60 to 65. So what they're comparing here is literacy and numeracy of those who have been through all the reforms with which you are familiar, which is Ofsted, quasi-market, and so on, back to people who went through schools 40 years ago under the old <laughs> failing system of the Atlee Settlements. Now, in all countries they looked at, except one, the children aged 16 to 19 
have higher literacy and numeracy scores than those aged 60 to 65. Guess which the exception is? It's England. So it's this truly terrible thing that you know the yeah. young children we had. I mean, that they'll now be yeah. 10 years old. Were worse in literacy and numeracy than their grandparents. Yeah. Well, that this. There's an awful anyone listening to this of a certain age <laughs> go yes I knew that I knew younguns couldn't add up and spell you know that that and that of course that's a terrible uh, insight into a, pr- a process that's been going on what, what thirty odd years or so or more and and has actually harmed it did, not only did not work in its own terms producing greater efficiency and greater choice and all those things it actually has done has done harm. Curious. <laughs> we should come to that conclusion. <laughs> Will we look back on the uh, Thatcher to now Thatcher to this experiment as a blip? In other words, what will go? What will inevitably? You were talking about, you know, the best way to yeah. manage school, to improve schools is to talk, talk about school improvement. You know, to go, you know, the old school, the old school inspectors and the school, what they used to call the um, the advisory teachers, when local authorities provided advisory teachers, they'd. They said this is the best practice, and they'd work with schools that were struggling to try and improve them. So that's cooperative. Are we? Are we going to? Will historians of the future say yes? You can mark off 1980 to something to now talk about 19 to 2020, whatever, and say this was a period when this happened, and it was a kind of aberration. Are we going to be going back to the past in some respects? No. Well, the thing is, um, I, I would hope. Well, I would hope people would regard it as an aberrate, you know, this was an experiment that didn't work, <laughs> whatever phrase you want to use to, to describe it. But I don't think we can go back to the past, because basically that's what it seems to me is what Wales has tried to do. And actually they, they get the worst results in PISA of any unit, country in the United Kingdom. So you, you need to, to move on. And I, I, the, the thing that, you know, during the ground with whom I... Uh, of disagreements about markets, we both agree that what what we can't allow is, you know, as I described what I'm told of in our village school here, which is under the Utley settlement, schools could fail children for generations and no one would intervene or do anything about it. The 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 the, the point is of course what we're dealing with here is a very small minority of what happens. And you can't design a system which is, you know, the, 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 what, what you're feeling happens. You can't design mm. a system to tackle this small minority. I mean, most people, like you, as I said earlier, go into it with a sense of mission. You know, this is, this is, this is, this defines me. This is what I am. I am a teacher, you know, and I educate young children. And it's a fantastic, you know, fulfilling, worthwhile career. And mm. what we need to have systems that recognise that, you know, this is unlike, you know, Michael Gove talking about the blob. It's not the blob. <laughs> it's a group of amazing people who need to be inspired and encouraged and, and developed. You, the thing is, you can't, you can't have that if you don't have systems to tackle, you know, schools that are failing, teachers who can't be bothered. Yes. You need both yeah. things in parallel, but they need to be distinct. I think that's interesting what you said. I was thinking of the way, you know, trying to solve Solve the exceptional cases as as if they were more general. I mean, when they introduced um, ID, you have to, now you have to show your ID when you go and vote, you have to, and so on. 
to solve a problem that hardly existed. So there's almost no voter fraud. That somehow that's somehow really yeah, a, nas- yeah, a, nas- yeah. a national answer to a, to a tiny problem. So, that, yeah, I mean, when you hear of a school where they play PE all day or there's a teacher who likes to do nothing at all, that, 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 that becomes almost like a moral panic. You know, that now we, yeah. we must somehow, we must root this out across the system where it's actually very, very rare. Another thing that's changed from my, my teaching career was that I remember when I first started teaching, so this is um, in the um, uh, 80s, late 80s, middle 80s, and the exams, you know, pe- people didn't worry too much. I'd say, I said to a teacher, I'm, I'm going to look at the exam results this year of our GCSE and A-level yeah. students. You know, are you really? Yeah. I'll just find out in the September when they come out. Now, the, now teachers are desperate to find out the exam results because exams have become more and more mm-hmm. important. For students, for teachers, for schools, for all the league tables yeah. and so on. So for better or worse, that's a changed environment. And school has become more determining of kids' future. My dad left school in the 40s with no qualifications and did fine. That's not going to happen today. So in a sense, schools have become more significant than they were prior to Thatcher, in a sense, in people's lives. Yeah, I know. Well, I think... Um... Again, you know, one of the things that came through you know, in this um, study comparing Wales schools in England and Wales when Wales stopped publishing school league tables was the, um, uh, as I remember, I can't remember, the, it, was, it was a few years after it had been Wales had stopped publishing school league tables, five good grades at GCSE in, in Wales, it was 30%. Um, now, the point now is, as you're making, you know, the point you're making is that not to get five good grades at GCSE means a life of at best marginal employment. So, so we talk about a world that has changed in which getting good examination results. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it seems to me the pressure that the you were describing teachers experiencing about good examination results, it, you know, reflects the change in the in the working environment. That if you do not good ed- get good educational qualifications, you will not do so. Well, not do well. Absolutely. I mean, as a, as a parent, my both my kids went off to school, and I thought, well, the main thing I would say, the main thing is that they're happy and they have friends and they enjoy their time at school. But of course, as the exams approached, course, I yeah. wanted them to get the best possible grades because I knew, and I you know, what that would mean for them late, later on. And so, in that sense. Um, Yes, I, I, I'm going to be deeply affected by the, by the information that schools get terrible results or the exams aren't very good or that the environment isn't very good for learning. So, no. so in, in that sense, it's not, you're right, it's, it's not the, you can't go back to where, the way it was. So where, where, do, where do we go from here? If, if, the, if the neoliberal market yeah. forces are coming to an end and we're going to get a Labour government next, maybe, Possibly, more than likely, and somehow there's a shift again. Something, something big. Something like we go look back on it and say, "This is this is like the Akira. This is like Thatcher." Where are we going to shift to? What will the what will it look like? Yeah, Keir Starmer's better at. Yeah. I suppose the uh, what? I, I mean, my I have a radical vision of, of the way we should organise government. You see, which, yeah. which is that, that the whole. I mean, that the, the whole market school system just isn't. That's not, it, it just give up on that. Um, but comparing school performance, which is what league tables do, but, but, but much more, I mean, I, I would create bodies similar to but different from local education authorities. I mean, I was talking to a, a friend of mine, you know, we took, it was, you know, this 
this rack in schools, mm. you know, and then mm. head teachers having a few days to sort that out. Um, and the sense in which this is your problem. Uh, it's just breathtaking. And, and, and this friend of mine who was, you know, he's, he remembers when, I don't this is in Oxfordshire, there's this wonderful chief education officer, Tim Brighouse. And he said if he knew if he had a problem, he could always see Tim Brighouse, you know. You had to see him at seven o'clock in the morning, but you would always see you. And now there's there's no one. You know, this is this is for you to solve. Mm. And I just think you ought to create a body which, you know, which is above the school. Um, and they could actually organise things like the um, the London Challenge, you know, which is comparing performance schools learning from each other. And I also w- would say they ought to have a key role in deciding the funding of a school. I mean, I spent a lot of time on how we use formulae for funding healthcare, you know, populations in healthcare. And we, we all know what the indicators of need are. The problem we have is knowing how much money to give for the indicators of need. So we, we it's, you know, eligibility mm. preschool meals is a good indicator that this child is in greater need, educational need than someone who isn't. But how much money you should give for that child, goodness, you know, we don't know that. I mean, it's just plucked, I mean, it seems to me it's just plucked out of, yeah, this is what we're going to give you for that. And so the, and, and we also mm. know in healthcare, you these formerly work quite well for large populations. You know, if you're up to, I don't know, 100,000, it's okay. But schools <laughs> are 100 pupils. No formula is going to give a good assessment as to what they ought to get. So I think, you know, local judgment, you'd know when you go into a school, you know, as to what that school's like, what the challenge is like. You could adjust the formula using judgment. I mean, some, you know, use a policy. Um, and then... The other thing I'd argue, which, which you know everyone thinks we need to do, is to move to devolution to re- create regional government. So the region will be overseeing these local education authorities, holding them to account, and then I'd see central government as holding regions to account for high performance. The other thing I feel we ought to have, and this is doubtless very controversial, is I think most of what we are called universities ought to move to under, be under regional governance. So there'd be a few internationally elite universities that exist outside that. But you'd want to put most of the higher education sector within a region so they can work with local employers, you know, get integrated, help develop the economy. And the other thing I feel strongly about is that we've put too much money in Wheat University, <laughs> Wheat University providing not very good degrees and not enough in the early years of education. I know you've had a, you know, a podcast on that, about the importance of the early years of education. So you'd want regions to look across what I describe as the educational pathway from the early years right through to university. And in fact, you know, people in mid-career want to go, how, how, are we go- how much do we want to spend on these different parts of the sector? which no one does at the moment. They all exist in these separate silos. It, it seems to me that we have um, empowered a lot of parents to be quite savvy consumers. They know yes. more about schools than they used to. They can look at league tables for, for, all, the, for all they're worth, and they can look at exam results, but we've not given them really much ability yeah. to enact that. As you say, the market, the market doesn't provide them with... It can, it can dissatisfy them, yeah. but it can't satisfy them, as it were. 
But I'm guessing that an awful lot of education systems in the world are locally managed in some way. I mean, whether it's American school boards or it's uh, local education authorities or because it, it seems just common sense. Well, well, US, the thing is, U.S. states will run a university sector, you know. I mean, that's, and the, 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 I mean, the other thing that you do then, I mean, part of the, um, the levelling up problem is that, you know, you've, you've sucked out the attractive jobs out of areas outside London. Of course, all the big government jobs are all in London anyway. But you can create, I mean, you know, just saying, look, you can go back to the region you came from, you can help shape the future, you know, that you, you can have a key job in developing education, I'll make them responsible for healthcare, you know, mm. how you revitalize the economy, all those sorts of things. You can create these engines of change. And I think that would be a key part of uh, addressing the, these huge inequalities we've got. It might address that very South-centric, London-centric yeah, kind of yeah. magnet that operates in Britain, as you say, that draws in all the creative people, young people with a, with a degree in something creative. Well, they're going to go to London, aren't they? They inevitably be drawn down to London Absolutely. By, by that. So we've created that. Uh, no wonder that it's uh, the, the North feels left out. Not only can you not get a train across the country from east to west, but you, but they're, but they you know, but you can't, you can't get uh, the, the jobs and the, and so on. Are, well, there's that analysis by the, um, it's the Financial Times data analysis. I think John Murdoch. And he looked across different countries about what the contribution of gross domestic product would be if you took out the, the, the richest city. Um, and he looked at the United States, the Netherlands, and Germany. And it ranges from 1% to 5% in these countries. Mm. Then he looked at the United Kingdom. And if you take out London, it falls by 17%. That's 1,7%. Um, and, he, and he also found out that the rest of the UK is as poor as Mississippi. You know, so you've got this, that's all part, I mean, it's not this huge divide you're describing here in terms of London being this magnet, you know, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's no wonder that uh, you and others are reflecting, how, how, did, this, how did this happen? How, how, did, how did Britain uh, come to this? Absolutely, yeah. How, how, how did Britain come to this? It's a state of the nation kind of observation, isn't it? Where, where did we get no, to this? Well, well the, uh, yeah, um, the key point, that, see, the thing is that the, the argument, the reason I look at Germany and Italy is we know there are good historical reasons why there would be geographical inequalities in this country. There's the mm. long-standing north-south divide in Italy with the south having these varieties of organised crime that make it incredibly difficult to run. Germany's got the legacies of communism which really held the country back for years. We've got none of those. And yet, you know, we've created inequalities without parallel in Germany and Italy. It's just extraordinary. That, it seems to me, like we're coming to the end of our discussion now, and uh, it, it is... Uh, we are living through times, not only how did Britain come to this, but how did the world come to this? Because we could, we could look outside of our shores right now and think so much of this looks like the 19th century, not like the yeah, 21st century. Yeah. It's a strange old world we do live in. And uh, um, thank you so much, Professor Gwyn Bevan, and uh, timely insight into how we got where we are. So. Many, many thanks. Oh, it's a great pleasure talking to you, John. Yeah.
And that brings to an end this week's episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week was Professor Gwyn Bevan of the London School of Economics, Professor of Policy Analysis and former head of the Department of Management. And we discussed, among other things, his most recent book, How Did Britain Come to This? A Century of Systematic Failure of Governance. If you enjoyed this episode, you can hear it again as a podcast on Spotify or on the Teachers Talk Radio site. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.